0: Welcome to the Fire and Bones podcast. I'm Michael Crosswhite, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama.
1: And I am Nathan Loudon, the pastor of Millwood Baptist Church in Austin, Texas.
0: Follow the podcast, rate it. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's episode. So, you preached a sermon this past week and... Two weeks ago. Uh, on Oh, it was two weeks, weeks ago.
1: ago. Yeah, I was gone a week in the middle.
0: I feel like you're always gone. You know what? Do you ever... How often do you preach at your church? <laughs> There's a whole different podcast. <laughs> I, you, I preach every other week the, at my church. You're still preacher. You're still hired. You're still paid, <laughs> I right? I
1: preach every other week at my church, and every third time I preach, I preach Revelation. So yeah, that's... Uh, no, I honestly, <laughs> I have... I'm making a note to my church in our member meeting on Sunday night. I've been gone more this spring at uh, convention stuff and preaching at other churches than any other time. And I was supposed to be gone last week. I canceled a trip because I've been gone too much, and um, elders have been supportive. Church has been supportive, but, man, I'm done. So, yeah, yeah, no more. No more. I'm preaching. We're stuck. Church is stuck with me now for a while.
0: Okay, so you preached a sermon four weeks, ten. What when was it? Two weeks, <laughs> ten a few, weeks a few ago, or something. Ago, yeah, you preached a sermon a long time ago, uh, but it was your most recent sermon <laughs> on, <laughs> on uh, Revelation twenty, verses one to six, mm-hmm. and uh, which is, hey, this passage is probably the most contentious passage in. Uh, Maybe it may be the most contentious passage in all scripture. Maybe I don't know. It's Mm -hmm. up there. It's going to be up there with some of the things that more people debate about. You even made a joke in the sermon. That's kind of the age-old joke that the millennium is a thousand years of peace that Mm -hmm. Christians fight about for a thousand years, something like that, something that to that effect. And um, you started off with the the sermon with these uh, kind of two sentences. And I don't. I thought I thought it would be helpful if you have. Do you have those yep. two sentences? Okay. Can you read those two sentences just so that we're all clear? And I'll I'll put the link to the sermon in the show notes because I think people need to listen to the sermon. It's very good. But go ahead and read those two sentences.
1: Okay. First two sentences. The millennium is the time between the death and resurrection of Jesus and the time of his second coming, the final defeat of Satan, and the creation of the new heavens and new earth. Sentence one. Sentence That's two sentence one. in this time, all who trust in Christ are raised spiritually to their temporary home, reigning as priests of God and of Christ.
0: All right. So that position, you you basically right out of the gate said I want you to hear these two. And then you repeated you read sentence 1, you repeated it mm-hmm. a second time. You read sentence 2, you repeated it a second time. Mm-hmm. And you said, "Look, that's my position mm-hmm. on the millennium." Mm-hmm. That's typically the position of the amillennial. Yeah, I didn't just, I
1: never did used that word.
0: No, you didn't, but that is what that is, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, I did
1: in the category of idealism.
0: Yeah. Um, which is yes. But yeah, okay. So uh, which is a whole nother podcast, but, <laughs> 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 but anyway, um, so that, so you kind of put out the millennial position and you said, that's my position. We're not going to fight about that. You might have a different position. And I think you even use an example of, of, of your dad being a pan millennialist, someone who just believes it's all going to pan out. And yeah. end. Um Which and, I don't think
1: that's, that's not a true accurate depiction of my dad's eschatology, sure. but it, uh, right. it played well.
0: No, knowing your dad it it, uh, it it I was like you can imagine him okay. saying that can't you i can imagine <laughs> him saying that and also it not being true yeah, so uh exactly. so <laughs> if pressed yeah. um so but but i thought it was really good because you get you first of all you kind of disarmed everybody and you were like i'm not here to fight i want to talk about jesus mm-hmm. and which is what i think this passage is really about mm-hmm. And it sort of disarmed everybody who might be there hearing you listening to a sermon on the most contentious passage in all of Scripture, mm-hmm. arguably. And it just sort of disarmed them. Mm-hmm. And then what it also did, I felt like, was it it gave them a lens to look through where they had a chance, Of seeing the amillennial argument without just dismissing it altogether Mm -hmm. and by reading 21 to 6 and so I thought it was a really good sermon Uh, not just because of how you opened it but Mm -hmm. because of the content throughout you sort of owned your own opinion and then basically just said um, you know here's why here's how I get there and why I get there and I thought it would be worth walking through the passage 21 to 6, because I think it's incredibly beneficial not because of amillennialism or premillennialism or any of those kinds of millennial positions that you could come to in this passage, but because of what John is actually saying in it, and what he's he's getting to for the churches, I think is incredibly beneficial. Mm -hmm. We know, obviously, that Revelation is a book where there is a promise implicit in it, explicitly stated in it, that if you read this and do mm-hmm. what is in this book, apply what is in this book, you will be blessed. Mm-hmm. And so it it it's so I think it's the only book that promises that blessing from the outset. And so I think this is part of that. And so I think it would be worth kind of going through, tracking through your arguments through the sermon and just walking through the passage and um and and laying out um, what what's being said and how it applies to us. But first of all, I want to ask, like, what was the reception of the sermon? Comments or anything like that that you got?
1: Yeah. Um, first, thanks for that encouragement. You know, you get at a passage like this, and, um, you know, odds are you're going to disagree with a lot of people, and uh, or a few people. Uh, there's going to be people in the congregation who have no clue what amillennialism is, or what dispensationalism is—they never heard those words. They don't. They couldn't define them. Uh, they've never studied Revelation. New Christians who have never heard this talked about, read, much less have formed opinions on. So, you know, really, I think there's a good portion of our congregation who heard me make that sentence and they couldn't imagine it being controversial. Like they have no category for that. Um, So it really was for a few who might be there. Uh, I don't even know of any in our church who I just thought, well, as soon as I say this, they might leave. I I didn't have any thinking, you know, that there was hostility out out there. Uh, I know there were some disagreements, but none hostile. So, um, yeah, I I got some of the similar encouragement about clarity, um, about uh, the Christology of the passage being central. Um, the the two main questions that I think the text is answering uh, that basically were my structure for the sermon I got encouragement that that was helpful to put it in the right categories instead of trying to figure out the, the, uh, the details and the time as the main thing we need to know um, so the two questions I, I, I put forward that I think this text is answering is how long must we suffer Satan and what happens when we die as Christians, right now between now and when Jesus comes back well what happens to us and those are the two questions I think the passage is largely trying to answer uh, that and more and other things um, but yeah generally good feedback thankful um, uh, yeah I, I think if I could preach it again I'd preach it close to the same way um, but probably adds more and <laughs> something like that I don't know <laughs> yeah
0: when you, hear, when you talk about what happens when you die, um, what do you think, just in, in doing, uh, not necessarily a, a personal assessment of your, your church or anything like that, or calling anybody out or anything like that, but just what do you think is the general consensus for what people have in their heads uh, happens when they die? Does that make sense, the question?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I've got, oh, and I'll speak over the 11 years, I'll speak over the 15 years of my ministry in Hong Kong and here. You hear everything from, uh, well, you know, granddaddy died, so now he's up there with, uh, up there, so you've got a location. Uh, he's got wings, he's eating barbecue, he's playing golf with uh, Uncle Joe, and... um I mean so you got those kinds of images and pictures of uh that bring comfort about what happens when you die and where you go immediately you go up there you go you get a big family reunion those images those hopes and those comforts uh you get angelic kind of ideals that you're going to become you, you get your, you get your wings i've heard that um uh, and then you get everything in the middle uh, from, you know, thinking that Christians are uh, on pause. Christians are in a holding non-conscience place, waiting one day to be uh, resurrected to the final joy. And then you have a lot of, I don't know, uh, you have a lot of, um, I, you know, I, I think to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, but maybe there's a weird time space continuum that uh you know your consciousness slows down and you you're you're dead and you're there but you're not there yet while we're here in time i mean there's <laughs> the the theories and the ideas are vast in their range uh mm-hmm. and they they teeter back and forth outside both sides of the spectrum of biblical into fantasy uh into uh Christian, uh, Christianese cultural hallmark versions of Christian hope. Um, uh, so I've seen a lot of uh, all of the above.
0: I, I, I think, um, I would agree with you, and I, and I think, uh, I typically, I, I would say rarely ever do I get the unfolding. Of the book of Revelation, or uh, I mean, lit, list the books that, that deal with the resurrection of the dead. that first mm. Corinthians comes first to mind, four, first Corinthians yeah. 15 the Thessalonians. That I, I rarely ever get that. I usually get um, either uh, something that looks, which I'm, I'm actually quite happy to receive, something that looks like the final consummation of all things. Mm-hmm when the kingdom is a, a, a you know comes in fullness like revelation 21 would kind of depict i either get that very few times mm-hmm. or i get um that sort of the heaven as the ultimate dwelling place um picture which i think is probably by far the most common
1: heaven being uh, the ultimate dwelling place in other words like uh america but no problems like what do you mean? Right. Yeah.
0: yeah. So so like what you described of grandpa's up there playing golf with Jesus kind of depiction. Yeah. Um, that that this is not my home. I'm just passing through heaven. When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. I, I'm uh, heaven is the ultimate dwelling place that I'm headed for. And you didn't do that in this sermon. And you you made very clear. I thought um, in a rather kind of lengthy piece in the middle of it that, um, that, um, that heaven is a temporary location Mm -hmm. for the believer. So where did you get that in the passage? What in the passage drove you to that? Mm -hmm. And like, connect those dots for me. What, if I'm not looking for heaven, what am I looking for? Yeah. or am I looking for heaven or what, what how do I even think about this when what happens to me when I die
1: mm-hmm. Yeah first I would say one of the problems with that kind of uh, idealized version of our current state that uh, lacks Christ and lacks revelation language that, that lacks New heaven new earth idea from Revelation 21 is kind of a it's kind of consumerism thrown into heaven, which is more like Islam. Than it is Christianity
0: 70 virgins I get a I
1: better think. version of this world um, now in, in a sense obviously that's true I'm preaching Revelation 21 uh, this Sunday uh, that you know I saw a new heaven and new earth everything's new no more tears no more crying no more pain uh, so that's true to a degree but there's a it is such a subtle difference to go from what is really promised in the new heaven new earth in God and in Christ and dwelling with God as the life-giving center. And oh, I can't wait to have, you know, all my my American dreams come true in heaven. That is a significantly different version of uh, what Revelation is, is painting. Um, when it comes to Revelation in the thousand years, um, I mean, the... Uh, the souls under the throne back in Revelation chapter 6 are asking from the very some from, of from, from the very beginning chapters of the vision of the throne, how long before you avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So time is a, is a big question. How long is this going to happen? And then the unfolding of revelation really from the throne, in chapters 4 and 5, where we see God, and then we see Christ in chapter 4 and then 5. And then in chapter 6, we have this, uh, uh, he has this uh, vision of those who are souls who are under the altar, uh, who've been slain for the Word, asking how long. And then we start seeing these visions of judgment. We start seeing visions of bowls and uh, of wrath poured out. We see the beast rise up. We see him empower heads of nations around the world to build up for uh, what I would say is a single final battle, and not everyone in my church agrees with that, and that's okay. Um, and so that there is there is a lot in Revelation that's answering how long and how this is going to be about. And so when we get to the thousand years, you know, for one, we have a, a very round number of completion ten times ten. And and times also 10. if I can if I can just
0: yeah. interject too real quick, the answer that's given to them in six is the until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete mm-hmm. who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Mm-hmm. Right? So like the expectation, the answer to their question how long is until the fullness of the martyrs or until the fullness of their brothers and sisters is the implication comes in mm-hmm. and so to your point there's hey, there's still more suffering that has to be done is kind of the expectation before we get to the unfolding of the beast and all, all of that mm-hmm. right yeah go ahead sorry and so
1: i think that's what revelation is doing it's answering that question explicitly in the text it's answering the question of what in the world is god doing in the world between Christ's ascension and His return, and uh, the thousand years, uh, like most everything else in Revelation, is uh, meant to represent something. Uh, m- many, most of the numbers in Revelation are uh, describing uh, meaningfulness, not always counting uh, numbers. Uh, if that, if that's clear enough. Um, so it says that those in Revelation uh, chapter twenty, verse four, I saw the throne. Those and is seated on it were those who thrones and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. Uh, that seems very likely to be the same thrones around the throne that he saw back in chapter four. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So that's a very vivid picture of those who have lost their heads, those who have been martyred for Jesus and for the Word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands. So this is not just martyrs. This is all those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads. So, for me, there are some decisions I made back in Revelation 12, 13, 14, talking about the beast and going forward. Uh, when does the beast come? What does the beast represent? Uh, the second beast, all of the horns on the beast's heads. Who are they? Who are they? When are they? Uh, those interpretive decisions, they kind of corner you into only a couple of options in Revelation twenty is yeah. the millennium. Uh, so... You know, one of the things we've said a a few times preaching Revelation is once you begin to make some interpretive decisions, the very beginning of Revelation, you've narrowed your tracks down significantly. Um, Mm -hmm. If you start thinking about Revelation 4, 5, you know, this certain way, you're not going to be a dispensationalist at the end of Revelation. You've already Mm -hmm. made that decision, if you're going to be consistent through the whole book. Um, So that being said, you know, I took the uh, understanding that the— uh, the beast um, and the image and the mark represented uh, global government increasing movement against Christians on the earth between Christ's resurrection and his return. So that's already there, um, and that the the mark of uh, the beast is a common global struggle for Christians in all times. Now, once you've once you've done that, when you get here and you talk about not receiving the mark on their foreheads, you're not talking about three and a half years or seven years or the last ten years or the last thousand years even when uh, you have a chance to receive the mark of the beast or not. Uh, That decision was made a while back in in terms of interpretation. Uh, Mm -hmm. So a few of the things in the passage, verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years uh, were ended. Uh, I take that to be those who are not in Christ, did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Um, That's the whole point. Yeah, it
0: has to be, right? I mean, because like 5, 4, the end of 4, they came to life, and he says, uh, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, for the word of God, those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received the mark on their foreheads and hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, seems to be all the, everybody who's in that those categories, yeah, and then the rest would be presumably people who are in who did take the mark mm-hmm. of the beast or perhaps did the killing, you know, both and or right. whatever it's that one has group. to be the rest, right? I mean, like that's it's, it's hard to find some other interpretation there,
1: right? So I'm thinking linear in in linear terms, or that's not the right word, but there's there's two groups here. There's not like multiple groups within Christians. You know, there's the beheaded Christians, there's the non-Mark Christians, there's just the f- right. faithful, you know, average Joe Christian uh, who attends church and he's nice and he doesn't bother anybody. He didn't. Good thing he didn't take the Mark, but that wasn't really a big deal for him. He's just kind of a normal Christian in Austin, Texas. Um, right. And then there are the rest of the dead and there could be, uh, you know, kings, oppressors, people who just didn't know about Jesus. No, 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 there's two groups of people in Revelation 21 through 6. Those who are faithful to Jesus Christ, willing to be beheaded, don't take the mark. They're faithful to Christ, and the rest of the dead. And this is talking about the dead. And that's
0: consistent throughout throughout the Book of Revelation. Absolutely, there's two categories. Absolutely, this is consistent throughout the Bible. Absolutely, there's two categories. This there's is not. Yeah, Revelation
1: of- is not about uh, martyrs, those who narrowly, those who die for their faith. Right. So when you when you get there, Revelation is actually already Revelation 20 is talking about the post-death experience for Christians, and the thousand-year reign is really addressing what happens to Christians when they die. And here's what happens: they come to life, and they reign with Christ for a thousand years. That is what he sees. The dead are going to come to life. Uh, the rest of the dead, excuse me going to come to life when that thousand years are ended that's the first resurrection uh i mean there's a lot of complicated pieces there there's you know the uh, what do you think about this continue to go on but one one thing as i would add this was what the interpretation that i took through the end of revelation uh and you and i talked about this a little bit last week um and uh you know the the idea of chapter 20 verse 11 through 15 the great white throne judgment death and hades give up give up their dead um, i really took this and i did go ahead and preach it despite your warning that i think those in 20 11 through 15 are namely the rest of the dead that they are awakened to judgment they are judged according to what they had done a Christian, uh, you know, an all-inclusive interpretation of according to what they had done uh, could be that those who were Christians were judged according to what they had done. In other words, context of Revelation, they were faithful to Christ, they were beheaded for Christ, uh, they did not take the mark of the beast, they were judged according to what they did, right? They, they trusted Jesus Christ. The interpretation I took is those who were thrown into the lake of fire were judged according to what they had done. And Christians are not. Christians are judged by Jesus Christ alone. We are not George, that That's our hope, that we're not judged according to what we have done. Uh, and the point being that when they get there, when the rest of the dead get there, and the millennium is over and they are raised to their judgment, they're not just going to be picked just because God's mean. God's not an unjust judge. Their works are going to be before them, testifying against them those who have taken the mark of the beast, those who have opposed Jesus Christ, those who have chosen pleasure and sin uh, over thankfulness for the death, resurrection of Christ on behalf of their sin, they will they will be bare with nothing but what they've done. And th- this was one of the most difficult sermons to preach, actually, not the millennium, this passage, because of the severity that death and Hades are in the lake of fire. And when you're stand, how I said it on Sunday, when you're standing... In front of the judgment without Christ. The bus that dropped you off is leaving and it will never come back again. There's no... It's just you in front of judgment. And there's only whatever is on the other side of death is gone. There's no more dying from this. Hades is gone. There's nowhere else to go. Spiritually. There, there is no more dying. There's no more Hades. There's no more places. It's just judgment and what you've done in front of the throne of God.
0: But what I love about it is they're not thrown into the lake of fire merely because of what they've done. Mm-hmm. They're judged by it. Mm-hmm. It testifies against them, mm-hmm. but it's not merely by what they've done. Mm-hmm. It, it is, and in 15, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, mm-hmm. he was thrown into the lake of fire. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, the reason that they're thrown into the lake of fire is their name's not in the book of life. Mm-hmm. Actually ties to my passage this week, which is Paul appealing to two people who are spatting in Philippi mm-hmm. because but he says that their names are written in the book of life. Mm-hmm. They were with me. Mm-hmm. They they labored with me in ministry, you know. I mean that is an um,
1: incredible certainty to claim about someone.
0: Oh man. Yeah.
1: For Paul to say their names are written. I'm not gonna say that about anyone. Now in in a sense
0: I can't even say I mean like I'm not gonna say that about me. In a you know sense what I mean?
1: <laughs> that's what church membership is. Yeah, well, we yeah. think your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. We think that based right. on your testimony and your life there is a profession and there is a life and evidence that uh you are a Christian, which means your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You can go ahead and publicly now to, you know, count yourself safe from the lake of fire on Facebook if you want. Go ahead,
0: right, right.
1: Um, yeah, that that to that's, say it I mean, like that We just that went for through Paul's, a church Defined
0: yeah. series on Wednesday nights, where that is that the core of church membership is essentially that we're saying that in church membership. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people come to me from time to time wanting assurance of salvation. How right. can I be sure that I'm saved? And there are many answers that we can give to that, but I have the feeling that one that we're missing so deeply. If we understood the depths of church membership is that is that meaningful church membership gives you assurance of salvation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That is one assurance you can have is that brothers and sisters are gathered around you and have said, we think you're a member of the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. I mean that that is an assurance there that like wow you know I have I, I I'm assured that my my name is written in the Lamb's book of life in as much as you can be sure, and and yes yeah, so Paul says that in Philippians two, uh, sorry Philippians four two, and uh, and here that's the grounding for someone being thrown into the lake of fire is that their name's not written in the book of life the other book is also opened. There's another book. He says in in verse twelve. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, both mm-hmm. this book and the book of, uh, the the book of life, according to what they had done. And ultimately, if their name's not in the book of life, they're thrown into the lake of fire. And the presumably the other book um, that has, you know everything ever said every careless word is used ag- against them in judgment mm-hmm. um you know but it, i think that's interesting that the book of life there is there is there so this book the book of life that shows up in 15 do you find that to be connected to the book that's mentioned in uh what is it 11 i think it's chapter 11 um the uh land of the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world is this the same book of life?
1: Which verse are you in? Eleven.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said that, and then I'm like, "Well, great." Now I, I can't remember. what I thought you had in. your
1: eyes on it, and you were, you I were did ready. I
0: It was not a setup. This was not a scripted thing. I was just like, it made me think about it, and then I was like, <laughs> "I now I can't remember." It might be, uh, oh man, if I find it, it's gonna be like just amazing, mm-hmm. you know, like, mm. um, yeah, mm. it might be 13. Is it 13? Is it 14? It might be 14. Mm-hmm. Um, no, nope, I don't have it. So I mean, it
1: comes, it's, it's back in revelation, uh, chapter three, even when, uh, when Jesus is talking to the church at Sardis and he, uh, tells them. You know, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I'll never blot his name out of the book of life. Uh, that, that's gonna, that brings up some questions. Um, chapter 13, uh, 7 and 8. Authority was given over every tribe, people, and language, and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb was slain anyone has an ear let him hear if anyone is to be taken captive to captivity he goes that's if the verse I was slain, trying to think sword, of sword sword he must be slain here's a call for the endurance of the saints so your question is is that the same the same book and is there one would uh, I think so book of life of the lamb who was slain I think it's the same book is that what yeah. you're getting it
0: yeah because it seems like it seems like this same book appears time and time again. It's it's a kind of a running theme that comes throughout not only the Book of Revelation, but uh, it like I said it appears in in Philippians two. Um, I think it's maybe or sorry I keep saying two Philippians four verse it might be four might be five, um, where you know they're they're. Uh, he Paul is confident that their names are written in the book of life. Mm-hmm. Um, this same book of life appears several times, and that book of life is not just an arbitrary list, it seems like, especially if Revelation 13, verse 8 has anything to say about it. But Revelation thirteen eight says, And all who dwell on the earth and worship in it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Mm-hmm. So the book's title, I suppose, the full title of the book is the Book of Life of the Lamb Who Was Slain. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's basically saying you're in Christ or you're not in Christ. Mm-hmm. And those are the two options, right? And Yeah, and... Is, is that the way you're reading it? Yeah, and
1: Moses even talks about uh, a book in, in um, Exodus 32 uh when he's uh, you know having a bad day with the people of Israel who are uh, rebelling against uh rebelling against God with the golden calf and Moses actually says you know he's wishing that they would um you know if God uh won't forgive them then blot him out of the book that he has written uh, mm-hmm. what does Moses mean by that there's i think the goal here I mean, you could connect it to Moses, but definitely in Revelation is God knows and has an account that never gets lost. This is a database that is absolutely permanent to God and is safe and secure. It's as old as the foundations of the earth. And the point is to offer encouragement to the believer that their security is stronger than their own faith feels today. It's stronger Mm -hmm. than what they're going through today. That Mm -hmm. if you are in Jesus Christ, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and there is security in Christ in this life, and there is security in the next life, because your name is written down because of Jesus Christ. So you're not going to get lost. You're not going to show up, and God's not going to know who you are. God's going to forget, and He's going to judge you. Your, your name is written down. I think a misapplication would be the kind of uh, Christian's temptation to anxiety and fear, just wondering if they're, you know, they're trusting in Christ, they're fighting sin, they're saying no to the mark of the beast— they are not giving in to work, to Babylon's worship and sexuality and sensuality. They're repenting of sin. They're fellowshipping with brothers and sisters. They're gathering with the church. They're helping out each other follow Jesus. They're not perfect, but that is the testimony of their life. But but they still live in anxiety that they're not their name might not be written in the Lamb's book of life. Yeah, and I think that's the exact opposite of what it's supposed to how it's supposed to function for us. This is not a calvinistic moment to go, well, did God choose me or not? That's not right, what right, this right. is doing. This is not anxiety inducing to the Christian. It exactly. is faith, security, endurance inducing to the Christian to know if you are trusting in Christ, you will not be forgotten. Christ is the secure hope for forgiveness of your sins and for eternal life in Jesus Christ. So that that the function of it to the Christian in Revelation is important, and here, here's the difference. I mean, this is I've said this about a few other things in Revelation, and it functions here as well. Christians who are comfortable and living in ease, and yeah, we can say that in America we're experiencing more trial and being squeezed more than we were decades ago. But, by and large, one of the the fruits that we're not suffering like a lot of people around the world are, when we read passages that are meant to encourage and affirm and confirm the security that we have in Christ, and we debate about its meaning, and we get anxious about whether or not we are in it, it shows it's not functioning the way that it's supposed to. A a deeply, a, a Christian who is deeply suffering and is seriously wondering about the opposition of Satan and wickedness and demonic activity in the and the nations in the world, is going to read Revelation and go, Praise God for the Lamb's book of life. That there's a record. That there is security. And that I can hold on to it. And that's the way we ought to preach it. That's the way it ought to be communicated. That there is security there. Uh, now, should it cause us to also preach... Here's a question: Is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Yes or no? That ought to be a question to non-believers. It ought to be a question sure. to church members, but it ought to be sure. in the way that we say, "Well, the answer is to trust in Christ, not go to sleep wondering, you know, what's been predetermined for you today." It's a question. Those are questions to ask, but the function of that passage is to encourage. Christians with the certainty, and it's even—I didn't get into this—but even that passage at the end of twenty is really—it's quite imprecatory. It is like the psalms, who are wondering what to define imprecatory. I was about to get there. What's going to happen to our our enemies? Right, the imprecatory prayers from the psalms are the psalms where David is praying, God, please come for the sake of Your name, take out the enemies, take out my enemies, take out Israel's enemies. Because you are good and just, and you defend your people, so would you do that? So this is not far from that, and basically answering the question, uh, what's God, what are you going to do? What about all these yeah. people who oppose you, uh, who reject Christ, and who are uh, at enmity and in hostility with you? What's going, what's going to happen? Um, and uh, the end of Revelation 20 gives us the uh, very sad, grave answer. Um, so yeah, we've kind of gotten past the millennium, but you, I think you can see there, there's, there's just a line, there's just a line of interpretation, really from chapter 4, 321, that and maybe backwards, farther than that even, but definitely from the throne. Uh, we have cap of the throne, I talked about that uh, as, this last Sunday as well. You have the throne in chapter four with the Creator on it, and then you have the throne in chapter twenty with the Judge on it. It's the same throne. It's a beginning and end in time before the new heavens and new earth. Um, and so you have a you have the string of interpreta- interpretive decisions to make through Revelation, and uh, you know honestly, once you kind of get on a train, once you kind of get on an interpretive track, uh, you will be you either get really really confused because you you keep jumping into other. Uh, interpretive lanes, you know. You see this in a dispensational way. You see this in a post-millennial way. You see this in an all-millennial way. And uh, that's really confusing. Uh, so, but for me, sticking on a track, uh, go back. And someone asked me, if, you know, a couple weeks ago, uh, we're coming down, I think it might have been after the Millennium Sermon. Uh, that, that actually was. Someone, uh, one of our members made a comment that was good, that was clear, that was... Uh, succinct. That was helpful. Uh, she said, I don't know how you had time to write that sermon this week, knowing a few other things that had gone on. And uh, I just, I've been writing that sermon for 10 years. That that did not get written this week. That that started mm-hmm. at seminary. <laughs> and mm-hmm. this is the first time I've preached that. I've been thinking about a lot in different ways over the years. Um, And so I hope that didn't sound condescending a minute to be like, hey, this is difficult. I did not do this this week. <laughs> right, <laughs> there's yeah. no way. So, um,
0: well, I I know that I've found that uh, in just in talking with, you know, many different people. There's especially you bring up the security element to this, the eternal security and the comfort of eternal security mm-hmm. that should be here for the Christian in this passage. Um, that there does seem to be a kind of view amongst both Calvinists and Arminians that I think maybe one view of Calvinism is, well, I might love the Lord, you know, my whole life and might follow him and go to church and then get to get up there, judgment, and find out I wasn't chosen. And that's absolutely not at all what you know that's even talking mm-hmm. about you know what, what Calvinism is even talking about and and rather the fruit in your life is evidence of the fact that God chose you and your name is written in the book of life before the foundation of the world that you you don't get there at that that day, and then find out, all oh, things are different than, than what I thought they were going to be. And that's not what the book of Revelation is even telling you. In fact, it's assuring you the opposite, mm-hmm. Like you are, are being given a, a confidence that knowing I struggle, I am beset by sin from time to time, I love the fellowship with the body, I love being at, uh, you know, church, I love uh, singing songs of praise, I love... Uh, everything about the Lord, um, but I, you know, struggle like every other person. And you read, maybe you read a Puritan, John Owen, or you read a, you know, so, somebody, and you're like, man, they were so much godlier than I than I have ever thought about being. And and you know, you you tend to struggle in that, and 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 think that because of what i see in everyone else i i I don't know if i'm you know saved if i'm really going to be there and there is and and john it seems is is reiterating your fruit and your faith and your desire and your love for the lord is evidence that your your eternity is secure and you can rest in confidence and get rid of anxiety and trust in Christ, and if you feel that anxiety coming up, it's cause to point you to Christ all the more. Mm-hmm. Just continue to trust in Christ, because what the person who is not saved does, even if they do have that question come up, is they don't lean on Christ, they lean on themselves, yeah. and they try to work harder and do more, and and all this, instead of going, you know what, I don't know, but I'm confident Christ has me. Yeah, And, and tell me what you think about this. All I, I
1: think um... There is increasingly uh, reason to say, as a preacher from a Christian pulpit in the West, that if you are not, if you never experience any heat of disagreement, of opposition, of uh, hostility uh, toward your profession of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Died for sins. And God is on the throne, judging men. That to say that you know, uh, so it, you know to say if that never happens, you might want to observe whether or not you are in Christ. To say that decades ago was probably more difficult because there was such a cultural, there is such a felt cultural favor of Christianity. There probably never really was a true welcome of. Christianity in the culture, but there was enough welcoming of it, welcoming of it and favor of it, um, in especially in white Christian evangelicalism, of Christianity into politics um, and into culture and schools and education. But increasingly, I feel like that's an application that you can make uh, in our country, that, listen, there there is an ever-increasing divide between... Uh, what is basic Christianity in terms of trusting in Jesus Christ, living in righteousness and holiness, and not taking the mark of the beast. That's becoming a clearer division. So that you can say with more certainty um, that if you are feeling very, very comfortable, um, you ought to be more and more wary of that in our time and in our particular moment. Uh, some of that could could actually be me being a bad historian because the church is never really truly comfortable in the world. Uh, so it might be more of a felt comfort, but um, I think it's pretty, you know, pretty well-documented fact that the numbers of uh, religious affections toward anything Christian are significantly decreasing at a rapid pace. Yeah, um, for sure. So does, does that make sense, though, that application, that increasing... Hostility, the increasing of the intensity intensity, makes it easier to say, uh, yeah, this is fruit of faith. Yeah, this is not in your life.
0: Yeah. Um, or there dangers I, in, in I, saying that. I, I, I think the the gospel is is constantly, uh, at least in our in evaluating our own salvation, it's always a question of loves. Uh, And I think that's what the gospel is really asking. What do you love? Mm -hmm. And for the Christian, the love is toward God Mm -hmm. and the things of God. And that is given by the Spirit. That's only given by the Spirit. There is no other way that you can love God and the things of God without the spirit of god dwelling in you. Mm-hmm. So that is the answer. That said, we all live in the flesh continually. Mm-hmm. So we are going to have a competing love. Now, your there you may look at one Christian and his love for the things of the world might be quite strong in some cases. Or another Christian might have no regard for the things of the world whatsoever, and only a love for the Lord. That is a a slightly separate question than do you love God and the things of God? Mm -hmm. Because if you love God and the things of God, that is only a result of the Spirit working in you. It's not a result of you. So there is always the process of sanctification is growing in the love of God and at the same time what will happen as you starve your love for the things of the world that will wane and the love for the things of God will grow um and I think whether whether that's just a little bit in our life or whether that's a a great deal in our life God brings us along in that Mm -hmm. but if you encounter a, a a person or if, if you would describe yourself as someone who really has a distaste for the things of God and the and and a distaste for, for God himself, then that would be where, where we'd say, well, there's no evidence of fruit. And how do you know how do you know that that's happening in the life of an individual? And I think that comes back again, like what we've been talking about, church membership and church discipline play a huge role in that, in helping you see that. You, you pursue sin and you're called out on it. The things of God are being presented to you right there when you're being called out by your friends uh, on your sin. How is it that you respond? Do you respond in repentance and faith, or do you respond by going, "No way, I'm not listening to you"? And then when you're when two or three more are gathered around you and they say, "No, really." We see this in your life. How do you respond then? Do you respond by pushing them away and saying, y'all are crazy? And then when the church comes around you and says, no, really, we think this is sin. Will will you you please repent of it and come back? Do you push away even from the church? Mm -hmm. In that case, you're presented with the things of God, and you're evidencing no love for the things of God whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And so in in which case, it's right for the church to declare you you know, uh, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector Jesus says. So I th- I think that's the role that church membership and church discipline can play in that conf- confirming to you whether or not your name is written in the book of life.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: you know and, I, and and so I think it, it is always a question of loves. And sometimes you can say, oh, I, "I really love God. I love the things of God. Of course, I love God." And I think we're brought up in a culture, and some th- some of what you're getting at, we're brought up in a culture that, that we, we say, "Well, well of course I, I love God. What do you think I am?" Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and and you're sort of Christian by birth. You know, yeah. we're realizing but we're realizing when, that when was
1: bloated all along. That was say again? We're realizing that was bloated and inflated all along. That which we called Christian, we're realizing, is easily being pruned.
0: Right. And, and so what then happens is when your faith gets tested, when you, when, uh, when you really kind of get thrown into the fire, whether it's through suffering or through, you know, it could be a, a host of, of issues, you get thrown into the fire of suffering and, and trial, and that faith that you claim, that love of God that you claim is tested well then we see whether or not it's real and when in the midst of trial of course like we all do we stumble and fall we we sin we have moments of doubt and things like that and you run and you run from repentance and you run from truth then um and you run from the body you run from church you run from you know everything to do with god then your your faith is kind of what whatever faith you presume to have is sort of tested and it, it's it's laid out there bare in front of you and so it, all of those give you an idea of what that judgment is actually going to look like whether it is that you love the lord truly or whether it is that when you're tested you run and so really you serve the god of convenience more than the god who Endures through trial, which I think is is really what the book of Revelation is is building. Right. To.
1: Yeah, and I think ultimately that's what the millennium is about. I have a hard yeah. time. Um, you know the, um, you know the the other the uh, the o- other option for the interpretation of the millennium that's closest to valid for me is uh, let me get my words right here. Kind of the the historical option where Christ comes, it's post-millennial, Christ comes at the end of the thousand years. It's a thousand years, it's a literal thousand years. It begins at some point. We could be in it right now. We could be in that literal thousand years. We don't know. Um, well. But, huh?
0: To, to a classic pre, not to a dispensational, but go ahead. Right. To a dispensational, there's typically the rapture that's going to take place. Right, oh,
1: there's marks for that, but yeah, for sure. the uh, the the historical post-millennial, what I'm talking about is there's a literal thousand years, but I have a hard time because I don't think John is giving us any evidence that he's seeing the throne and thrones, that's his time stamp as well as his vision uh, connection, one big vision beginning in chapter four with God on the throne. Uh, to say that there's a set of Christians who are going to experience before the millennium, and there's a set that's going to experience during the millennium. I'm having a real hard time seeing any evidence for that in the text. and haven't found a compelling right. argument to force me into that yet. There are some things that are compelling right. about it. Uh, that being said, the this is about that assurance that, okay, I'm following Jesus right now, and what's going to— how long is this going to go on? When is the world gonna, when's God going to wrap up the world? How long do we have to suffer Satan? Because the part of the thousand years is that Satan is bound for a thousand years for the purpose of not being able to deceive the nations. I took that to mean uh, t- t- to have uh, Great Commission implications for the thousand years.
0: Yeah, you went straight to Matthew. I went
1: straight to Matthew, and then for for better or for worse, and then when Satan it was right. is released again, he's going to deceive the nations. So again, that but that all falls back onto my understanding of Revelation, beginning to end, that it is a cyclical, reciprocating vision of the same things in, in the same time, and so, and uh, so seeing the millennium like that means uh, that. He's answering the question from chapter 6, right? How long is it going to happen? Well, the answer back in Revelation chapter 6 is until all your brothers and sisters come in, until everyone else comes in. And then this final answer is, look, there's a fixed period. There's a thousand-year period. Satan is bound. The nations are not totally deceived, right? They're not going to—Satan's not going to be able to deceive them to stir up that final battle. That is being pushed back and held for a thousand years, and at the very end, Satan will be released again to stir up that battle. At the very end, and the very end will come. Up, the very end of the end will come about when Christ mm-hmm. returns and conquers. So, the question that's being answered for Christians is, "What happens to us? How long is this going to go on?" And God's answer is essentially, uh, "There's a thousand-year dynasty where uh, Christians reign." With Christ in heaven as soon as you die, and on earth Satan is bound between now and then. By the way, he can't deceive the na- that that stuff that you're afraid of. The very very end that can't even happen until that thousand years is over. So what's happening right now? He's bound, and uh, I, I took that not even to be bound as, um, totally inactive but uh, limited in his binding to not deceive the nations totally so that there can be a coming in of the nations to Christ. So it is motivating missions, even. Um, In the end, that would be very different.
0: Yeah, I mean, so basically what Jesus says in the Great Commission, which is what you were getting at, um, which you didn't... I don't think you quoted this part of the verse, which uh, if we had more time, we would talk about, but... um, he says uh, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me mm-hmm. go therefore and make disciples of all nations mm-hmm. baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and I am with you always even to the end of the age and um, so the, the, there's clearly something that happens one that Jesus has given authority post resurrection and we, I think that's Daniel 7.14 type imagery or whatever, and I've obviously preached through Matthew recently but, and got into all of that, um, but, and we, we've talked a number of times about that here, mm-hmm. but um, there's clearly something. So he's clearly been given authority, and this also is a trigger. His authority is a trigger to send the, the disciples out to the Gentiles,
1: mm-hmm. to the
0: nations, right, Everywhere far and wide, Mm -hmm. broadcasting the message. Whereas prior to this, um, there is sort of a restriction of God's movement, of Christ's movement even, amongst the promised land Mm -hmm. to the Jews. He tells the woman, the Canaanite woman that. He says, you know, I was sent to the Jews, you know, and this isn't for the dogs. Mm -hmm. And she's like, even the dogs eat crumbs from the tables, you Mm -hmm. know. Um, and he continually says, "I was sent to the Jews. I was sent to the Jews." And now he's saying, "Boom! Gen- go to the nations, mm-hmm. right? Like it's it's a release. It's it's to the nation." And that that is, Satan is, and and that's what I think you're reflecting here is that in verse two of chapter twenty of Revelation, John is saying, "Satan's bound," mm-hmm. and you're to go to the nations. Mm-hmm. And as you go to the nations, Satan doesn't have power over the nations that he once had. Mm-hmm. It's been given to Christ, mm-hmm. but it's coming back. Mm-hmm. So, how long will we suffer Satan? Is was your other question in your sermon? Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, we'll, will There's a, def, there's a defined point of time listed at stated as a thousand years mm-hmm. in Revelation. But we're saying and we believe that that thousand years is not a, a literal one thousand years exactly, mm-hmm. but a, you know, he's the he owns the cattle on a thousand hills kind Complete of known time. idea that right. it's. It's meant to represent the whole, the whole period of time yep. between yeah, it's a perfect amount of time that that God has determined. And 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 probably too meant to connote it's gonna be a lengthy time. It's mm-hmm. gonna be a little bit. Yeah, you know? Absolutely. And and uh and then after that, he is going to be released to deceive the nations again. Mm-hmm. Has that happened already? I mean, maybe, right? I mean, isn't that what we're saying? Right. Is there yeah, absolutely if, you, if you're to ask the question, has Satan been released? Is he deceiving the nations now? Right. M-
1: maybe. Absolutely. I think. Right. Yeah. That's. 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 That becomes a point where there's. It's speculative. You can't know. It's. It's not. We're not told. Uh, to my understanding, Revelation have a marker when that thousand years ends, as it will know, right. because it will end. Satan will be released. The the knowledge of it will be the increasing pressure of the global. Uh, National system against Christians, yeah, against the the body of Christ on the earth. That that will right. be that will significantly change and bring about uh, bring about the end. And two, you, you read all through Revelation, you see uh, going back in chapter thirteen when the the beasts are given the, Satan's authority, they rule nations. They rule. All the nations um, and so there is a work there was kind of a an, an interpretation of that backwards in revelation. Satan was bound to say so that the nations can't all be totally deceived, and yet the nations are under this beastly power at the same time. So the question really is, how long are we going to suffer Satan? and his beast and the whole the whole thing well what's happening right now is Satan is bound he can't totally deceive the nations the mission to go save the nations will happen that's what we saw back in chapter four we see that in chapter seven the nations are at the throne every language tongue and tribe yeah. and um, but that time is going to come to an end um, yeah. but here's the here's the thing I I, I think it, it really is telling and it can, it can sound like a cop out it can sound like an easy way out. But if your interpretation leads you to just be really right about your interpretation and enjoy being right about the millennium, God, pity. What a, what a sad falling short, you know, of the intention that here here's the point. When you die, you come to life and you reign with Christ for a thousand years. Right, that's the. I think that's the hope to every Christian between resurrection and His return. Uh, so right. that this is a hopefulness. And,
0: and doesn't that also, doesn't that also help you evaluate your interpretation? If your interpretation doesn't lead to the conclusion that we just kind of laid yeah. out—that we we're, we're celebrating with Christ, we're reigning with Christ post death—that a- after we die, we we go to be with the Lord, soul. Our soul goes to be with the Lord. That there is a new heavens and new earth to come, where we will reign with Him forever in a resurrected body. If your your interpretation doesn't lead ultimately to that conclusion, mm-hmm. then don't you also have to say There's something wrong with my interpretation? Because right, that and, well, and, and this, by I mean, the let's way, let us put it
1: this way: you could, you could actually have, you could do this, an all millennial person can do this as well. There's not an interpretation that you can't mess up. In that way, you could, you could have, you you could give me someone who's a dispensationalist, and they could just be absolutely overjoyed in Jesus Christ's power and victory in return, and mm-hmm. we can go to war together. Mm-hmm. You can also show me an all millennial who is so dadgum proud that he has yeah. figured out the Bible. He's shut. He's, he has shed, left behind, in his childhood, you know, m- movie memories, and now he knows better. Well, right. Brother, what about Jesus? What what about him? And yes. death and the first resurrection. Those things are pretty clear and it, and it's not a cop out of interpretation to right. actually say no, if your interpretation doesn't get you there, you might even be right, but you have you are severely misusing your right. interpretation.
0: Well, yeah, and, and I mean that but I think that's the metal of your your Interpretation is what does it result in? Does it result in rejoicing that Christ is the Savior, right? Or does it result in being right about your interpretation? Right. I know people from all viewpoints that are on either side mm-hmm. <laughs> of yeah. that equation. Right. And, and here's what here's and, one thing I would
1: say as a pastor when I'm preaching, uh, and I've I've seen this uh for example on Mark Dever's preaching on Revelation as an example, you're gonna leave not having all your questions answered. And I've said this explicitly a few times. Uh I mean even as we're talking about the book of life, I did not give that much attention in my sermon. Right. Uh I could I could go back and preach that and seriously emphasize that, get get into the biblical theology of what that means. It's New Testament use. I could have preached ten sermons on that section. But yeah, uh the thrust of the book of Revelation is trust in Jesus, conquer, raise to new life, go to be with God forever, don't take the mark of the beast. It's, it's so simple. It's mm-hmm. really clear. It's not, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, Re- Revelation, say it a thousand times, is written to reveal, not to conceal. And what is revealed to us is very, very clear, very simple.
0: Right. And that's part of the reason why Christians for 2,000 years, though they have varied on their specific, precise interpretation of all of the nuts and bolts of Revelation, have been unanimous on what it ultimately is about mm-hmm. and what any of those positions must end in, which is we go to be with the Lord, in heaven, after death, prior to the resurrection of the dead, where we dwell on the earth forever mm-hmm. uh, with Christ, in new heaven, under a new new heaven, and on a new earth. Um, well, I was incredibly encouraged by the sermon. Again, I'm going to post that in the show notes. What I want you to do is I want you to read those two sentences, if you still got them, again, just to close it out.
1: Yeah, and I would add to one, you know, uh, I'm going to force you into this like you forced me into this one. <laughs> I want to bring up Matthew 18 and the keys and the uh, the gates of hell. Hades, technically, shall not prevail against the building of his church. The more I read Revelation, the more I see connections to Matthew 18 and the keys of the kingdom of heaven in Peter's hands, and the church's hands. Here's the two sentences. The millennium is the time between the death and resurrection of Jesus and the time of his second coming, the final death of Satan, and the creation of the new heavens and new earth, which for me is coming up in 21 this week. Second sentence, in this time, all who trust in Christ are raised spiritually to their temporary home, reigning as priests of God and of Christ.
0: Amen. Well, good sermon. I was encouraged by it. I hope other people will be encouraged by it, too. Um so uh keep going thanks see you next week First view. listening to the Fire and Bones podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing or following the show on your favorite listening platform so you can be notified every time a new episode is released. Consider leaving us a generous review if that's an option for you and most importantly share this podcast with someone that you think might benefit from it. Be sure to check the show notes for any relevant links including our contact information. Feel free to reach out to us with any questions you might have. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on the Fire and Bones podcast we we'll